Thank you for listening to a Wednesday night class from Christ Church of Orinoco. For more information about these classes or about Christ Church in general, visit us online at ccochurch.com. And now, here's this week's class. All right, welcome back. We'll go ahead and get started. Um, I asked my students a question kind of randomly today that I'd love to ask you just to kind of get the temperature of the room, so to speak. Do you remember mood rings? Do you remember those? Yeah, yeah, okay, yeah. I don't ever, I never had one. I think there was probably mainly like a girl thing, but my sisters had them, and I, I don't exactly know how it works, but I know the idea is that the color of the ring supposedly corresponds to your mood. So here's the question. As you walk in uh, tonight, and we're prepared to continue studying Genesis and looking at some of these stories and trying to grasp some truths from us, where yet on the way in? That's the question. If you had a mood ring, what color would it be right now? What color is that? Green for happy. Okay, green for the grass growing. Okay, yeah. All right, what else? Now, what color would your mood ring? Galen, if you, had a, if you were a mood ring, what color would you be right now? Blue. blue. Why blue? Yeah. Okay, good. All right, blue because it's a beautiful day outside. What else? Any others? Come on. Woody, what color would you be? Chartreuse? Red, okay, not chartreuse. I don't even know what chartreuse is. Why red? Okay, the joy of learning. Blood of Jesus. That's where I thought you were going with it. The cardinals too. Yeah, yeah. Okay, good, good, um, cool. Well, I don't know where you're coming from, but I'm glad that you're here. And I look forward to what we're going to do tonight. We're going to take a little bit of a different approach, which I'll try to explain here in just a second. Uh, let me pray, and then we'll jump right in. Father God, thanks for the opportunity once again to gather, and we pray that you would help us to listen with our lives, listen with our, our, obviously our ears first of all, but to continue opening up the rest of us, mind, hearts, uh, behavior, community, those various things, and asking how the things that you're teaching us in your word are going to, um, going to take root in us in different ways. So we pray that you would continue to do your work in us, and we ask this in Jesus' name, amen. All right, uh, so we're going to, like I said, take a little bit of a different approach tonight. So let me try to set up what I think we're going to do. Um, whenever I try to, whenever I preach uh, here or elsewhere, typically I try to have one like crystal clear main idea that I'm trying to communicate, one compact truth that the whole thing is organized around. Something like, I remember when I got to preach a marriage sermon, the main idea was that marriage is uh, designed to reflect God's love for his people. Or um, I remember in the actor series, uh, one of them was, God is always drawing bridges to people who are far from him. When you see one, walk across it. Or the path to joy is to choose joy. Or the best proof of the Bible's truth is a life that demonstrates its power. Like one compact truth that communicates everything. And sometimes it's a little bit long. Hopefully sometimes it's relatively short. But the idea is, if you say one thing and say it well, then the likelihood of people hearing it is increased. Generally speaking, on a Sunday morning, that's a pretty valuable uh, thing to keep in mind. In, in preaching circles, people that call it the big idea um, or if you're an educator, maybe they have a similar thing, like the big idea you want to communicate or the, the dominant thought, the main thing you want to uh, get across. And the, the value of it is we can't, we can't like think about a bunch of different things at the same time. And especially on a Sunday morning with everything else going on, it's just beneficial if we keep our mind focused on one particular truth and try to drive it home. I love this. I try to do this well. The only negative is that there's a lot of truth that comes out of the text 
that like the preacher gets to benefit from because he or she studied the text that doesn't ever make it into the message, doesn't ever make it into the sermon, you know? So there may have been 10, 10 to 12 cool insights or four to five cool insights, but in the end, in the interest of being clear, sometimes you have to chop the rest of that off. I think that um, every Bible passage is, is full of insight and truth for us that if we pay enough attention to it, we'll, we'll gain enough from it. And there are some portions like Genesis where there just seems to be different truth popping off the page all over the place. So tonight, I don't want to hold back any of it. I hope this works because I got like a 15-point sermon, except don't worry. Some of you are like, your one or two-point sermons are long. What's a 15-point one going to do, you know? I'm not going to talk all night. Uh, I'll, I'll say more, more about some of these than others. Some of them just need to be stated. Others could use a little bit of explanation or reflection. But that, our approach is going to be a little bit different in that respect. Usually what we try to do, or at least what I try to do in here, is I just kind of walk through the text, um, inductively walk through the text on its own terms and ask, you know, how do these different things fit together and what was going on at the time? And at the very end, maybe we'll do some personal takeaways. What are some things that we learn about our life of faith from this? What I want to do today is instead of like working our way from the roots through the trunk, out the branches, and then getting the fruit at the end of it, I just want to walk up and pluck the fruit off the end of the thing, okay? And this is what I'm trying to do with these various stories that we're going to be talking through today is we're going to look at them. I'll give you a quick overview of what we're covering. Then we'll go through in each story and we'll read it. Um, but instead of just spending a whole lot of time getting to the, the personal takeaway for us, I just want to grab hold of some of the things we learned from the different characters in these stories. That's the idea behind what I want to try to accomplish tonight. So there's no one uh, right or wrong way to do this, but that's how we're going to do it today. And um, I'll tell you a little bit about what I want you to do with these truths as we kind of walk through it. The first thing I want you to do is just to get ourselves in the right mindset for what I kind of think the Holy Spirit wants to do this evening. I want you to think about a couple questions, and I want you to write a few things down in this respect if you're able to. The first question I want you to think about is when it comes to your life with God, and I don't mean anything fancy by that. You might call it your walk or your faith or your journey, whatever you call it, like you're trying to do life with God. What are some questions you've been asking lately or some things you've been wrestling with? I'm going to give you some time to write down a couple of those. Then the second question is slightly different. If you think that God might give you a message to share with someone else, who do you think that might be? So like if you were just guessing, and if God was like, you're thinking, yo, so tomorrow, let's say God said, tomorrow I'm going to give you like some, some idea or some encouragement or some question or some truth to share with another person in your life. Who do you think it might be? I want you to write down two or three names in that respect. So take a couple minutes and write down some of the things you've been wrestling with in your own faith. Walk with Jesus, your walk with God. And then if God was going to speak to you for the sake of somebody else, who do you think it might be? Take some time, fill those out, and then I'll regather our attention. Okay, if you don't mind, as, as is our typical practice, I'd love to hear from a few of you um, on, on some of the things that you put down. I know most of you like to stay silent. That's fine. That's what I'd do if I was in the room, but some of you don't mind talking to me. So what are some of the things that you're wrestling with or the questions that you're asking when it comes to your own life of faith? Yes. How's this going to help me? How's this going to help me? Okay, good. Yeah, good. What else? Yes. Um, why can't I get this done on my life? I mean, I know it's not, it just seems like you get attacked from all angles, and no matter how hard I try, okay. I know it's not how my work Sure. Why can't I get this in out of my life? I just want it gone. Yeah. Yep. Okay. Okay, good. 
And by the way, maybe I should have prefaced it with this. My hope in, in raising some of these is that we'll continue to obviously think about the same questions in our own lives. And um, I think that the text will speak to some of them that we talk about. Um, I think it will, God can speak indirectly to any of the things that we're wrestling with. Some of them will be direct. Others will be a little bit more indirect. So yeah, let's keep a couple more. Galen. How can I serve him better and more? Good. Okay. Excellent. Yes, sir. How can I know your will for me with assurance? Yeah. And for me, the question is kind of this: once you know, we, we all realize that God doesn't does is not typically going to let us going to let us know everything. So, like, how much assurance am I supposed to have before I act on it? You know, um, that's that's a tough question. Yeah. That's uh, that, that whole guidance side of things. Good. Anything else? Okay, what about the second question? Who do you think that if God were to give you a message for someone else, who do you think it would be? Your husband, your kids, okay? Your mom, your kids. Anybody else? Yes? Your students, okay. Yes? Best friend. Best friend, all right, good, yeah. I have no idea who he's going to speak to you on behalf of or speak on behalf of to you, but I look forward to seeing uh, some of them will probably be people who are on your list. Others uh, may not be. Let's get a quick overview. I want to walk through uh, Genesis 18 through 20. That's the portion of scripture that we're covering tonight, Genesis 18 through 20. And I'm going to read each story as we dig into, you know, some of the little bit more of the, the practical takeaways. But first, let's just get a big picture of what's going on between uh, these sections. So it starts in chapter 18 with Abraham sitting outside his tent, middle of the day, and some visitors show up. He somehow recognizes that they're guests of honor, and so he takes great care of them. Finds out later that they're actually angels sent from God. One of them seems to be almost like God in, in person in some mysterious way. And they have a conversation where these, these messengers confirm that Sarah will give birth to a child. And Sarah laughs about it. And then they confront her on it, and she's like, I didn't laugh. And they're like, yes, you did. <laughs> So then we move from that. They're like, okay, so cool. One conversation. Then the next conversation is um, the, the, um, the angels and God himself are there. And, and he has in mind to go visit Sodom and Gomorrah to see if these places are as bad as he's heard they are. And if so, to destroy them. But before going, the Lord says, you know what? Why not share my plan with Abraham? And so he starts to talk to Abraham about his plans. And then Abraham just kind of goes back and forth with God and says, God, like, are you sure that this is the right thing to do to destroy a whole city because of some wicked people? And so God says, hey, if you, there are 50 people there. I won't destroy it. And, God, and Abraham's like, well, since you listen to me, can I ask another question? How about if there are 45? God says, fine, 45, no problem. Abraham says, what about 40? He says, okay, fine, 40. Abraham says, what about 30? And he keeps working them down to the point where he says, if 10 righteous people are there, Will you let them live? And God says, sure, no problem. So then God goes to Sodom, or the angels go to Sodom on behalf of God, and they're not treated very kindly. They don't find ten righteous people. What they find is our boy Lot, who is Abraham's nephew, has been living in Sodom for a while, sitting at the city gates, and as soon as he sees these men coming, he says, why don't you come stay in my house? So no, we're going to go stay in the town square. No, 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 you don't want to do that. Come stay in my house. And so these men come to stay in Lot's house, and then all of the other men in the city decide as an act of dominance and power to show up knocking on the door saying, let those men out so that we can rape them. I mean, this is intense. 
And Lot, being the great and wonderful, selfless, wise leader that he is, says, oh, hey, how about you have my daughters instead? Yes, we'll talk about how ridiculous that is. And the men, they're like, no, we want the men. So then these angels are like, all right, dude, you get your people and you get out of here because this place is every bit as bad as we thought and it's going to be destroyed. So it takes some, some like wrangling and pulling. You'd think they'd be ready to run. It takes some pulling and eventually him and his, and his wife and daughters get out of there and then God destroys the place. Destroy burning sulfur, right? We'll talk about the, the sulfur and the, and the fire and the way in which this place essentially just becomes torched because of the great evil that we see there. So Sodom and Gomorrah are destroyed. Meanwhile, Lot's wife decides she's not going to make the trip with them, and so she gets turned into a pillar of salt. That's weird. We'll talk about that as well. Then Lot ends up in a cave with his daughters, and his daughters are like, well, the only person around is dad. We don't have sons we're not going to be taken care of. We don't have, like, we have no way of protecting ourselves. And so they're like, we have a plan. We have an idea. Let's get dad drunk. So no joke, they get dad drunk. One night, the older daughter sleeps with him. Next day, they get dad drunk. The younger daughter sleeps with him. Both become pregnant by their father in this cave, giving birth to children that would become nations that essentially are enemies of Israel throughout her history. And then, as if this isn't bad enough, we pick back up with Abraham who in chapter 20 is hanging out with the king of Bimelech, guess what he says? This'll, you won't believe this. Like, this will just totally be crazy. He says his wife is his sister. Again. So a lot going on in these sections. And let's see what it is that we can learn from each of them. Now, here's what I want you to do. I want you to, as we walk through these, be thinking, not how can I apply all 15 things in my life. There's, I mean, if you can do that, I don't, you're more spiritual than I am. What I want you to be thinking is, what is one thing from the from from what is one of these lessons, one thing from this list that that God might want me to think about and apply to my life? And what is one thing from this list that God might want me to share with somebody else? So one for you, one for someone else. As we walk through this, that's what I want you to be thinking. One for you, one for someone else. What one thing is for you that God wants to speak to you? And what one thing is something that you can share with another person? Now, given that our goal right now is to listen to God for our own sake and also for the sake of others, let's talk about listening real briefly. I don't need you to write this down so much as I'd like to have a short conversation uh, reflecting with you on, on, on listening. So I think I'm going to write some of this up on the board. Let's make two columns and start with uh, the, on the right or on the left. What are some things that, um, that make it difficult for us to listen to other people? Or what are some things that keep us from listening to one another? That's the question. Yes. Distraction. Distraction. All right. What else? Resentment. Okay, pride. We don't want to listen to them. Why should we listen to them? They should be listening to us. What else? Okay, opinions. Personalities, yeah. What else? Busyness. Fear. I'm going to put wandering up here with distraction. Good. These are some reasons why we don't listen to people. Yeah. We're, we're, we're looking at them, but we started listening to them, and then like five words in, we stopped listening to them for all sorts of reasons. Maybe because we didn't think they should be listened to, or maybe because we think they're perfectly fine. I just have so much going on. We do this all the time to each other. Now, I don't even know if I need to write. Let me just go ahead and ask for the sake of it. What are some reasons why, that, what are some things that keep us from listening to God? 
Noise, yeah, exactly, yeah. Noise, what else? Radios in the cars, noise. Always something, huh? Always something to distract us, yeah, yeah. How many of you instinctively, when you get in the car, you turn on the radio, whatever it is, whether your poison is music or talk or sports or whatever, you just, it's just a habit. You don't even think about it, huh? Steal that silence, yeah. At the end of the day, yeah, some of you already kind of got the, the, a little bit of the point of this. I don't know that I need to write a whole lot down because literally this list functions as boast, as, uh, uh, as boast for both, right? The noise distracts us and so our mind wanders. Maybe there is some resentment uh, toward God that we have in our hearts because we feel he's let us down in the past. Maybe we do think we can do it on our own, pride. Maybe we do think we already know everything that needs to be known so we don't need God's opinion on the matter. Maybe we don't like God, whether our personality doesn't fit his or his doesn't fit ours or whatever. Maybe we're just busy. How many of you, if you're being honest, would say that a, a major part of why you don't spend more time trying to listen to God is because you just have so much on your to-do list? You're not raising your hands, but I assume like by the nods that you're saying yes to me. Yeah, okay, cool. Also fear. I don't know what he's going to say. Last time I listened to him, he told me to do something crazy. Or I've never listened to him because in the Bible when people listen, he tells them to do something crazy and I don't want to do something crazy, so I'm not going to listen. At any rate, are all sorts of things that may keep us from listening to God. Let me just encourage you for what it's worth to not allow these things to keep you from listening to God. There's a mind-blowing concept, right? I can't remember if I shared this with you last week or not. But that I share with you the question that's been haunting me lately? What if God had something to say to you that was very important, but he was waiting for your sustained, undivided attention to say it? How long would he have to wait? That's the question that's been messing with me. What if God had a message, whether it was for me or for me to give somebody else, that was very important? So important that he couldn't risk it not being heard. And so he was waiting. You know, you do this with your kids. You do this with your spouses. You do this with your coworkers, your bosses, your employees. You wait until they're looking at you. And you have their energetic, and I don't mean like happy, happy. I mean like not exhausted, right? So not at the end of the day, okay, what do you want? No, like their energetic, sustained, undivided attention. What if he has something to say to you, but he's waiting for that? How long would he have to wait? That's the question that's been haunting me. At any rate, I, I can't control what happens outside of this room. And honestly, right now, you can't either. Because all we have is this current moment. But what we can do in this current moment is try to remove the noise and lock in as much as we can and, and open ourselves up to his voice in our life. So that's what I want us to do as we walk through these various stories. So first, let's look at the three visitors and Sarah's laughter. Genesis 18, 1 through 15. I want to read this story, and I want to share a couple of lessons about the life of faith that we learned from Abraham, and a couple of lessons about the life of faith that we learned from Sarah. So, chapter 18, verse 1. The Lord appeared to Abraham near the great trees of Mamre, while he was sitting at the entrance to his tent in the heat of the day. Abraham looked up and saw three men standing nearby, when he saw them, he hurried from the entrance of his tent to meet them and bowed low to the ground. He said, If I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord, do not pass your servant by. Let a little water be brought, and then you may all wash your feet and rest under this tree. Let me get you something to eat so you can be refreshed and then go on your way, now that you have come to your servant. Very well, they answered. Do as you say. So Abraham hurried into the tent to Sarah. Quick, he said, get three seahs of the finest flour and knead it and bake some bread. Then he ran to the herd and selected a choice tender calf and gave it to his servant who hurried to prepare it. He then brought some curds and milk and the calf that had been prepared and set these before him, before them. While they ate, he stood near them under a tree. Where is your wife, Sarah? They asked him. There in the tent, he said. 
And then one of them said, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, will have a son. Now Sarah was listening at the entrance to the tent, which was behind them. Abraham and Sarah were already very old, and Sarah was past the age of childbearing. So Sarah laughed to herself as she thought, after I'm worn out and my Lord is old, will I now have this pleasure? Some of my favorite questions in the Bible. (laughs) Then the Lord said to Abraham, why did Sarah laugh and say, will I really have a child now that I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? I'll return to you at the appointed time next year, and Sarah will have a son. Sarah was afraid, so she lied and said, I did not laugh. But he said, yes, you did laugh. We learn a lot from this story. A couple of things that we learn, first of all, from Abraham. We learn, number one, you never know when God might show up. Just never know when God might show up. Uh, notice the setting of this story. Abraham is sitting at the, at the entrance to his tent in the heat of the day. In ancient culture, this is the, this is the midday siesta. It's nap time, all right? It's hot. You don't want to do any work. The sun is out. It's not like you can escape with the air conditioning. So typically, this is the time when people take a nap. So Abraham's in the middle of nap time, and God shows up. Abraham's just trying to get some chill time, some rest time, and God shows up. Matter of fact, there's a verse in the New Testament that refers to this story. In Hebrews 13, 2, it says, uh, let me just read it to you. You can write down the reference and, and take a look at it later. Uh, here's what it says. I want to get the wording right. Hebrews 13, chapter 2. It says, do not forget to show hospitality to strangers. For by doing so, some people have shown hospitality to angels without knowing it. Isn't that crazy? So next time somebody asks you, have you ever seen an angel? Your answer should be, I mean, not that I know of, <laughs> you know. I don't know. Maybe. Maybe I have, and I didn't even know it. So the point of this is God might show up at any given time. It reminds me of, uh, it's, like, it's like the reverse green eggs and ham. You know green eggs and ham, right? Where Sam I am is like, you know, would you like them on a mountain? Would you like them near the fountain? Would you like them when it's night? Would you like them in the bright? Like whatever it may be. I don't think those are actually the words, but you get the point. Like all the time, anywhere, in every situation. You should go back and read green eggs and ham if you got it in your house because you got little kids or grandkids or whatever. And re- think to yourself, every single scenario that Sam I am mentions is a scenario in which God might show up. Like literally, there's no time in your life or place you might be where it would not, where it would be impossible for God to show up. Now, God works by patterns, and He typically shows up in the same kinds of places. He typically shows up when people are praying or when people are, you know, going to church or when people are doing His work, but not always. There's no formulas when it comes to the, the patterns of God's Spirit moving throughout the world, and sometimes He surprises you. And what this means is when you think you hear His voice, When you think he's leading you, you can never say to yourself, well, that can't be him. Not here, not now. There is no not here, not now to the voice of God. You might be in the middle of sin and God calls your name. You might think to yourself, oh, not here. God might get my attention somewhere, but not here. Hey, here. You might be in the middle of church and you're thinking, oh, somewhere else, but not here. I don't know why you think that, but you might. Here. Maybe it's the middle of a sermon series that has nothing to do with you. Maybe we don't do a lot of this here, but maybe we do a sermon series on some topic that's totally irrelevant to you. This is the time when God can show up. I remember one time I preached a sermon at this, uh, my first, the first church I ever preached at. You guys know where Dedrick, Missouri is? Yes. 
Dedrick, Missouri, Dedrick Christian Church. It was super fun. Spent a year preaching there uh, my, uh, my last year in college. And I preached a sermon on parenting one time. And there was this one guy in the church who was like super, he was like a critic guy. He was like a good guy, but super critical. He would always walk up to me and he would give me feedback, but he didn't want to talk about it. You know what I mean? Especially when I'm young, I'm like, well, let me defend myself. You know what I'm saying? So he was like, I just want you to notice, you know, only two families in the church are kids. And I started explaining like, well, you know, part of my point was, no, I don't want to talk about it. Just want you to notice. Get out, get out the door. You know what I mean? He was a really good guy. I'm totally playing. Uh, but at the time I was frustrated. But I remember thinking, thinking to myself, like, you're hindering your own walk with God because you think because the sermon doesn't obviously and directly apply to you, there's nothing you can hear from it. That's on you, man. That's on you. So there's never a time when God necessarily won't show up. Could show up any time. Second thing we learn from Abraham is sometimes when he shows up, it's not about you. Abraham goes like to great lengths for these guys. Probably because usually when God shows up, God says something pretty cool to Abraham. You've noticed that pattern so far, right? Don't forget where we came from in chapters 15, especially, where God shows up and says, hey, don't be afraid, Abraham. I'm your great reward. I got your back. You're going to have the land. You're going to have offspring. It's going to be great. Abram's thinking, oh, man, this is awesome. I'm going to get another word, another reassuring promise from the Lord. And then it's not about him. Who's it about? It's about Sarah. No new information is shared in this episode because the point is not so much that there is new information. The point is that it's for someone else. I'll come back to that in a second when we talk about Sarah. For now, let me focus on the idea that it's not about you. Now, part of being human is that we evaluate the things that we do. The ways we spend our time, the ways we spend our energy, the ways we spend our money. Is what I'm doing worthwhile? Is it good? Is it worth my time? Is it worth my effort? Is it worth all the work? Is it meaningful? So on and so forth. We do this with everything in our lives. We do this with our jobs. We do this with families. We do this with hobbies. We do this with church. And to some degree, it's fine and good. Like God doesn't want us to waste our lives. He's made us so that we ask, is doing this thing worth my time? I only have 24 hours in every day. Sometimes I'd like to stretch it out a little bit. But I can't, neither can you. Only 24 hours in every day, and you got to spend some and most of them sleeping. So this idea that we evaluate what we do with our time is, is a good thing, I think. But it can lead to this dangerous attitude where everything in our life is evaluated by one question. What's in it for me? And we find ourselves saying, I'm not getting anything out of this. And therefore, we check out. And sometimes, maybe okay, sometimes not so much. And I think this is especially dangerous for those of us who live in, a, in like a consumer-driven society. How many advertisements do you think you hear every single day or see? It's hard to count, isn't it? And every one of them is saying in some way or another, this will make your life awesome. You or at least a little better. You deserve it. Yeah, you want this. It's going to be good for you. Like never do you have an advertisement for a product that's not going to be good for you. Here, take this pill. It's going to be great for your neighbors. Why would I do that? So you, every day, encounter multiple messages that are saying, hey, you should care most about what's good for you. You should be interested in what's good for you. And what happens is we take this what's in it for me mindset, we take it to life group, we take it to Bible study, we take it to church as a whole, we take it to corporate worship, we take it to our times of Bible study and prayer. And when nothing is in it for us, we figure it's a failure and we walk away. 
I won't ask you to raise your hands, but I'd imagine that more than a few of us have been in, in this situation where it's like, all right, I'm going to start reading the Bible. You know, I'm going to do it faithfully. I'm going to do it regularly. And so we get going. Maybe it's like January and you start in Genesis and you're working through it and you're going and it's like exciting at first. And at a certain point, it just doesn't seem to be doing anything for you. So what do you do? You stop. And the reason why we do this is because we fail to recognize that sometimes it's not about you. Maybe you didn't come here tonight for you at all. Maybe literally I'm about to rattle off 15 truths and you're going, honestly, none of them really apply to me. Okay, then this one does. Because <laughs> sometimes it's not about you. Now, from this same story, we learn a couple other things from Sarah. From Sarah, we learn, this is lesson number three, it's not enough for others to believe. Once again, no new information added here. We already knew this. We've already been told this. Not too long ago, matter of fact. God doesn't add any new information because it's not about new information. It's not about new content of faith. It's about a new person coming to personal faith. It's not about Abraham. It's about Sarah and her faith. In the same way that in chapter 17, Abraham and all the other men in the community are brought to a personal commitment to the Lord, a.k.a. circumcision, now Sarah gets brought in personally Because she hears the voice speak to her, and her thoughts are read, and her sin is confronted, and she has to come to terms with the fact that even though she's not Abraham, even though she's not the one who was directly called to leave and to be blessed, she too is a part of this venture. And what this means for you is that it's not enough for me to believe. It's not enough for Mark to believe. It's not enough for your life group leader to have an active faith. It's not enough for your mom or your dad or your husband or your wife. Like what God wants, and it's not just a demand, it's also an offer. What God wants is to bring everybody in. And so sometimes he'll he'll say the same thing that everybody's already heard because it's not for everybody else. It's to bring you in to the place where everybody else already is, to bring you to a point of personal commitment. It's not enough for others to believe. It's not enough for others to take the life of faith seriously. This is an invitation to all. And also, what did Sarah do whenever she heard that she was going to have a baby? She laughed. Why did she laugh? She didn't believe it. Why didn't she believe it? Because she's old, because it's ridiculous. You know what I mean? It's, it's crazy. Why, who would believe it? Who would believe that a woman pushing three digits is going to have a baby? And this takes us to lesson number four. From Sarah, we learn number four. Don't evaluate God's promises by human limitations. I don't think we should, I mean, I don't imagine that you do. If, if you're tempted to, don't. Look down on Sarah. I mean, I think we can playfully laugh at her laughter, but I don't think we should mock her. Because at the end of the day, I'd be laughing too. You would too. She's looking at this going, that would take a miracle. And God's going, uh-huh. <laughs> kind of good at those. So let's take us back, take ourselves back. I know it's been a week, but think about last week I asked you, what are some of the promises that God gives us? You said things like forgiveness, eternal life, the world will be restored, God will guide me. These are the things that God has promised you. And uh, even if it seems like these things are impossible from a human standpoint, okay. Even if they'll take a miracle, okay. That's fine. Maybe you think, no, you don't understand what I've done. I I don't care what you've done. I understand what God is capable of. Maybe you think, you don't understand what I'm thinking right now. I don't care what you're thinking right now. Because it's not about what you're thinking right now, because it's not about what you can do on your own power. It's about what God can do. And here we see that God can do that which is humanly impossible. Do not evaluate God's promises based on human limitations. Or you will find yourself laughing at God and then feeling bad and in trouble whenever he says, why are you laughing? Yes, you did laugh. Yes, you did. 
Don't evaluate God's promises by human limitations. So that's what we learned from the first story, those four lessons. Now let's read, this is a longer one. So uh, open up your Bibles, make sure you're following along, because I, f- I just, I don't want to split this up, kind of w- want to read this all together, the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. So I'm going to start in 1816, and I think I'm going to go all the way through the end of chapter 19. Let me make sure that's what I want to do. Yeah, want to go all the way through the end of chapter 19, and, um, and then we'll, we'll, we'll look at the rest of it later. So there's a lot of characters in here. A lot of lessons from some of these characters. So follow along with your eyes if you need to, on your, in your Bibles or on your phones or whatever. Also listen in with your ears, because I'm just going to read it straight through. Here's what the text says. Genesis, uh, starting in 1816, reading through the rest of this chapter, and also chapter 19. When the men got up to leave, leaving from the camp with Sarah and Abram. When the men got up to leave, they looked down towards Sodom, and Abraham walked along with them to see them on their way. And then the Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? Abraham will surely become a great and powerful nation, and all nations on earth will be blessed through him. For I have chosen him, so that he will direct his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing what is right and just, so that the Lord will bring about for Abraham what he has promised him. Then the Lord said, The outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is so great and their sins so grievous that I will go down and see if what they have done is as bad as the outcry that has reached me. If not, I will know. The men turned away and went toward Sodom, but Abraham remained standing before the Lord. Then Abraham approached him and said, Will you sweep away the righteous with the wicked? What if there are 50 righteous people in the city? Will you really sweep it away and not spare the place for the sake of 50 righteous people in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to kill the righteous with the wicked, treating the righteous and the wicked alike. Far be it from you. Will not the judge of all the earth do right? The Lord said, if I find 50 righteous people in the city of Sodom, I will spare the whole place for their sake. Then Abraham spoke up again. Now that I have been so bold as to speak to the Lord, though I am nothing but dust and ashes, what if the number of the righteous is five less than 50? Will you destroy the whole city for lack of five people? If I find 45 there, he said, I will not destroy it. Once again, he spoke to him. What if only 40 are found there? He said, for the sake of 40, I will not do it. And then he said, may the Lord not be angry, but let me speak. What if only 30 can be found there? He answered, I will not do it if I find 30 there. Abraham said, now that I've been so bold as to speak to the Lord, what if only 20 can be found there? He said, for the sake of 20, I will not destroy it. And then he said, may the Lord not be angry, but let me speak just once more. What if only 10 can be found there? Abraham does not have a lot of faith in this place. (laughs) He answered, for the sake of 10, I will not destroy it. Then when the Lord had finished speaking with Abraham, he left and Abraham returned home. Chapter 19. The two angels arrived at Sodom in the evening and Lot was sitting in the gateway of the city. When he saw them, note that where he's sitting, gateway of the city. When he saw them, he got up to meet them and bowed down with his face to the ground. My lords, he said, please turn aside to your servant's house. You can wash your feet and spend the night and then go on your way early in the morning. No, they answered, we will spend the night in the square. But he insisted so strongly that they go with him and entered his house. He prepared a meal for them, baking bread without yeast, and they ate. Before they had gone to bed, all the men from every part of the city of Sodom, both young and old, surrounded the house. And they called to Lot, where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us so that we can have sex with them. Lot went outside to meet them and shut the door behind him and said, no, my friends, don't do this wicked thing. Look, I have two daughters who have never slept with a man. Let me bring them out to you and you can do whatever you like with them. But don't do anything to these men for they have come under the protection of my roof. 
Get out of our way, they replied. This fellow came here as a foreigner, and now he wants to play the judge? We'll treat you worse than them. They kept bringing pressure on Lot and moved forward to break down the door. But the men inside reached out and pulled Lot back into the house and shut the door. And then they struck the men who were there at the door of the house, young and old, with blindness, so they could not find the door. And the two men said to Lot, Do you have anyone else here? Sons-in-law, sons or daughters, or anyone else in the city who belongs to you. Get them out of here, because we are going to destroy this place. The outcry to the Lord against its people is so great that he has sent us to destroy it. So Lot went out and spoke to his sons-in-law who were pledged to marry his daughters. He said, hurry and get out of this place because the Lord is about to destroy the city. But his sons-in-law thought he was joking. With the coming of dawn, the angels urged Lot, saying, hurry, take your wife and your two daughters who are here, or you will be swept away when the city is punished. And when he hesitated, the men grasped his hand in the hands of his wife and of his two daughters and led them safely out of the city, for the Lord was merciful to them. As soon as they had brought them out, one of them said, Flee for your lives. Don't look back and don't stop anywhere in the plain. Flee to the mountains or you will be swept away. But Lot said to them, No, my lords, please. Your servant has found favor in your eyes and you have shown great kindness to me in sparing my life. But I can't flee to the mountains. This disaster will overtake me and I'll die. Look, here's a town near enough to run to and it is small. Let me flee to it. It is very small, isn't it? Then my life will be spared. And he said to him, very well, I will grant this request too. I will not overthrow the town you speak of, but flee there quickly because I cannot do anything until you reach it. That's why the town was called Zor. By the time Lot reached Zor, the sun had risen over the land. And then the Lord rained down burning sulfur on Sodom and Gomorrah from the Lord out of the heavens. Thus he overthrew those cities and the entire plain, destroying all those living in the cities and also the vegetation in the land. But Lot's wife looked back and she became a pillar of salt. Early the next morning, Abraham got up and returned to the place where he had stood before the Lord. He looked down toward Sodom and Gomorrah, toward all the land of the plain, and he saw dense smoke rising from the land like smoke from a furnace. So when God destroyed the cities of the plain, he remembered Abraham, and he brought Lot out of the catastrophe that overthrew the cities where Lot had lived. Last section, verse 30. Lot and his two daughters left Zor and settled in the mountains, for he was afraid to stay in Zor. He and his two daughters lived in a cave. One day, the older daughter said to the younger, Our father is old, and there is no man around here to give us children, as is the custom all over the earth. Let's get our father to drink wine and then sleep with him and preserve our family line through our father. That night, they got their father to drink wine, and the older daughter went in and slept with him. He was not aware of it when she lay down or when she got up. The next day, the older daughter said to the younger, Last night, I slept with my father. Let's get him to drink wine again tonight, and you go in and sleep with him so we can preserve our family line through our father. So they got their father to drink wine that night also, and the younger daughter went in and slept with him. Again, he was not aware of it when she lay down or when she got up. So both of Lot's daughters became pregnant by their father. The older daughter had a son, and she named him Moab. He is the father of the Moabites of today. The younger daughter also had a son, and she named him Ben-Ami. He is the father of the Ammonites of today. That is our story, folks. And it is a strange one, to say the least. Let's see if we can't learn some things from this story for our own lives. Starting, starting once again with Abraham. From Abraham, we learn a couple things about having a relationship with God. So before I give you the blanks, let me ask you the question. What, Tim, what do you think about this, I, this, this phrase, relationship with God? And I don't know that I'm going to ask you to talk back to me so much as I am going to try to create a little space here for you to think about it. When you hear somebody, well, I'm working on my relationship with God, 
Does that ever strike you as kind of strange, or does it strike you as perfectly appropriate? <laughs> That's awesome. From row two, I get perfectly appropriate. From row four, I get strange. From row three, in the middle, I get both. Enough said. Well done. Probably on the one hand, well, yeah, but on the other hand, well, no. Relationship, I mean, it's not like every other relationship with I, I have. How is it different from every other relationship I have? I can't see him. Yeah, he's like not physically in front of me. So to suggest that I have a relationship with someone who I can't see with my eyes is a bit different. And yet, I find the language to be appropriate. Strange for sure, but appropriate. Not because it's just like every other relationship, but because in certain respects it is. So a couple things we learned from Abraham about the nature of having a relationship with God. Lesson number five, God invites you to missional friendship. Just take the word mission and add A-L on the end of it. Missional friendship. Friendship on mission. Now I want you to think about this with me. Oh, no, I don't remember who first said this, um, but I didn't. But I think it's true that community is a byproduct of mission, or friendship at its best is a byproduct of serving together. Now, you can have friends who, who you know, you don't necessarily try to accomplish anything together, but if you think about the closest friends that you've had in your life, they were probably a byproduct of you and that person trying to accomplish something together. Maybe it was a business par- partner. For many of us, it was a teammate. If you think about some of your most intense forms of community, it was when you were on a team, maybe a sports team or, or a band or something of that nature, where you were partnered with other people trying to accomplish something. I think this is true in the church as well. Uh, one of the reasons why church small groups and church life groups are tough is because we get into them because we want community. Totally appropriate. It's, it's, it's biblical to want community, to seek community. But what we sometimes fail to recognize is that if you try really hard to get community, sometimes you don't get community. Because it's like there's no purpose to it except for itself. And yet if you are part of a life group, and if you are part of a life group, it's a simple fix. Just find a way to serve together occasionally. Try to do or or make your community about supporting one another as you serve Christ throughout the other days of the week. Because community is a byproduct of mission, of trying to accomplish some purpose or goal together. And I think similarly, we see something with respect to our relationship with God. Here we see that God kind of brings Abraham into the conference room, so to speak. That as this is one of the most intimate moments of friendship that we see between Abraham and God. An actual conversation between the two of them, and yet it's not so much about their relationship, it's more about God bringing Abraham into the process of trying to figure out how the mission is going to move forward. So once again, use this metaphor of conference room. Like God invites Abraham into the conference room, and I think the same is true with respect to you. God doesn't want you to be a spectator. He wants you to be a participant. God doesn't want you to be a yes man or a yes woman. He wants you to be a true partner. And so if you're wondering, like, why isn't my relationship with God better than it is? There may be any number of reasons. And I don't want you to hear me giving you a guilt trip where no guilt trip is appropriate. But let me put it as clearly as I can. If you're wondering why your relationship with God is not thriving... And, on the other hand, you're not really like trying to live on mission with him. You're not trying to serve him as you go about the process of your daily life. Then why would we be surprised when the relationship is struggling? If I'm not actually trying to like do his work and be a part of his kingdom mission, but I'm looking at him all the time going, where are you? He's going, I'm right here. Where are you? I'm trying to bring you in on this. Would you just let me? And so recognize that God calls you to friendship. I want you to see God as your friend on the short list of titles for God that you have in your brain. Titles like, you know, God or Lord or Savior. On the short list, I want friend to be one of them. 
one of them. I want you to feel that you are God's friend and know in your conscious experience that he is your friend. That's going to happen as you live on mission with him. So he brings you into the mission. He doesn't just say, do this, do that, do this, do that. He brings you into the mission and asks you to be part of the process, which leads us to lesson number six. It's kind of pretty closely related. Prayer is a genuine dialogue. God God wants you to talk to him. And God wants to talk back to you. And God is always speaking to you through Scripture. It's not just that God sometimes speaks through Scripture. It's that anytime you read Scripture, He's speaking to you. It's just a question of whether or not you can hear it. And He is often, I think, speaking to you uh, directly. Or at least He's prepared to if you would just give Him the time of day to listen. If you create habit patterns in your life that make room for God's voice, I think He'll speak. So God speaks. But it's not just that. He listens. God wants to listen to you. It's almost, did you feel like Abraham was like haggling with God a little bit? Like bartering with God? I don't know. I mean, if, if God came to you and said, here's what I'm going to do, how many of you would tend to say, okay, cool, awesome? Abraham doesn't do that. He says, are you sure? Because I think maybe I have a better option. Now, in the end, does God do what he intended to do? Yeah, because God knew what Abraham didn't know. But he, he actually had the conversation with Abraham. And I believe he meant that. I believe that, you know, if, if, if at this point he were to find this many righteous people, I think God would have done exactly what he told Abraham he was going to do. He just didn't find that many, unfortunately. So God calls you into a missional friendship, and within that, prayer is a genuine dialogue. Now, we also learn a couple of things from Lot. Lot's a great example of a bad example. Lot serves as a wonderful reminder that you're not supposed to imitate every Bible character. Sometimes what you're supposed to learn from them is don't do this. Uh, sometimes, <laughs> so... Uh, any of you guys know who Junie B. Jones is? It's like a set of little books, right? So Claire's in first grade. She loves these Junie B. Jones books. And Junie B. Jones uses all kinds of words that like, we, I mean, I remember the other day Claire was reading and she didn't know how to pronounce the word stupid. I'm like, hey, I think that's a win. You know what I mean? Like you probably know how to pronounce some other words, but you don't know how to pronounce the word stupid. That's cool. And this, this is, we do that. We give our kids sometimes books and stories where, where, the, where the, the, the children in the stories do things that we don't want our kids to do. Why? Because we want our kids to imitate them? No, because the opposite. We want to have a conversation with them about what not to do. Lot is that kind of character in Scripture. It's a couple of things we learned from his life. Uh, number seven, taking the easy way today may prove unwise tomorrow. I just want you to remember uh, a conversation that happened between Abraham and Lot long ago, year, decades ago, and for us chapters ago. Remember in chapter 13 when Abraham and Lot realized we're, we're getting too big, we're growing, and we've got to figure something out. And remember when Abram looks at Lot and says, you pick the land. And Lot says, let me have the easy stuff. Taking the easy way today may not turn out well tomorrow. May prove unwise tomorrow. So do you have any decisions to make? Sometimes God invites us to take the path of least resistance. Sometimes he doesn't. And so you need to be careful. You need to spend time in prayer and asking community. If you've got a decision to make, be careful about taking the easy way. Because what seems easy today may prove unbeneficial tomorrow. And the next thing I want, and this is for any of you who have any sort of influence over other people or who want influence over other people. Number eight, selfish people cannot be effective leaders. Just can't. So Lot is, remember where he was? Where was he sitting whenever these men approached the city? Out of the gate of the city, which speaks of some sort of a leadership role within the community. So Lot was at some level a leader, a recognized leader in the community. And yet, he knew the town was out of control, so he wouldn't let these visitors actually spend the night in the town square. Maybe he's not such a great leader after all. And if you keep looking forward, what does he do when he's under duress? What does he do when they come and asking for these men? 
Here's my two virgin daughters. Do what you want with them. Are you kidding me? This is his solution to the problem? Yeah, he's definitely a bad leader. And then when he actually leaves, it's more of the same. He can't convince his sons-in-law to come along. Because apparently he's not the kind of person who you take at his word. He's not the kind of person who's an effective persuader. When this guy says, hey, trouble's coming, he's the kind of, you look at and go, he's the kind of guy you look at and go, well, probably not. I got an important message. Well, I'm probably not going to pay attention to it. Why? Because you're not the kind of person I pay attention to. You're not the kind of person I follow. Then whenever he finally does leave, because he's actually like pulled away, he's like, oh, no, I can't go over there. Let me go to this small town right here. I mean, honestly, like, sorry if this is offensive. He's kind of a wuss. You know what I mean? He just is. He's a whiner. There you go. He's a whiner. Thank you. He's a whiner. A whiner wuss is what he is. (laughs) And I don't think it's a coincidence that we never once see Lot acting unselfishly. Every decision he makes is motivated by looking out for number one. This is how it'll go well with me. And so if you are a person who's in positions of authority over other people, don't expect them to follow you. Don't expect them to want to follow you if you're looking out for number one. And if you, especially you young people in the room, if you want to go on to some sort of a a job or role where you have leadership positions over others, then practice selflessness. Get used to it. Because people who look out for number one don't make very good leaders. So that speaks to all of the daddies in the room and the mommies in the room and the grandpas and grandmas in the room and it speaks to all of the the, uh, shift leaders in the room and it speaks to all the managers in the room. It speaks to all the teachers in the room. If you're looking out for number one, don't expect to have an effective track of leadership come behind you whenever you look back on your story. So these are the things we learned from from Lot. Let's take Sodom as a whole, and I want to mention a couple here uh, from this as well. From Lot, from Sodom, we learn a couple of things. And number nine, God will not relent forever. He will not hold back forever. There will come a time for judgment. It wasn't yesterday. Apparently, it's not going to be today. Chances are, I suppose, if I was a betting man, I wouldn't say it's going to be tomorrow, but it's going to come, and we don't know when. It will come. Why do you think God waited till the morning in Sodom? Because the morning was when you held court in the ancient world. This is when the judge offers his sentence. He waited for the morning because he wanted it to be clear. This is not just some random act of, of natural disaster. This is, uh, this is God judging people for their wickedness. Think about the attitude of Sodom's citizens up to that point. You don't have to guess at this because you see it in his sons-in-law, but think about the other folks who are a part of this city. What do you think they would have said a week previously if you suggested to them that they should probably change their ways or soon God would judge them? Get with the pro- Look around you. God's going to judge. He's not going to judge us. Stop, stop caring about that dumb. Just come have some fun or come gain some power or go do whatever. Stop worrying so much. Do you see any evidence anywhere around you that God is going to judge us? Are you serious? That's why the sons-in-law thought God thought, thought Lot was joking when he said God's going to judge us. Well, I guess you just, it doesn't seem like it's going to happen until it happens, you know? And I think that a consistent teaching of Scripture is that God is incredibly patient, and then judgment comes. And these things like make sure you get on the right side of history, and we're moving forward, get with the times, don't be stuck in the past. These things are easy to say until judgment day, and at that point it's too late. The second thing I think you learn from, from Sodom about the nature of God's punishment on sin is that God actively hands you over to the consequences of your sin. I don't know that we'll have time to read Romans 1 right now, so I want you to write in the, in the margin of your notes, Romans 1, 18 through 32. 
Because I think that is in like argument form, a description of what we see here happening in Sodom. The cities of Sodom and Gomorrah were right around the Dead Sea. It's an interesting place. Smells like salt and sulfur. Petroleum is produced from this region. All of the ingredients that became the the means of destruction were abundant in this area. Oil, salt, sulfur. And I think the point is there's a naturalness to what happened. Like this was the outworking of their sin. This was the nature of what they were doing in their place. They were in a place and time acting a certain way and the consequences were appropriate to their place and time. I think God's wrath, according to Romans 1, is you experience the consequences of the path that you're taking. So there's a sense in which part of what God does is he makes us such that our behavior today has a causal impact on what happens tomorrow and so on and so forth. And he did this because it happens in the good. The more you love your wife, the more you love your wife. The more you love your husband, the more you love your husband. And by that I mean the more you do the right thing with respect to your covenant commitments, the more you become a person who does the right thing. It's true with any area of life. The more you do the right thing, the more natural doing the right thing becomes to you. And it's almost like the good becomes its own reward. And yet we credit it to God because he's the one who made us this way. And on the flip side, it's almost like there's a natural process here of when you give yourself to sin, you experience the consequences of that to which you give yourself. You give yourself to money, essentially you become obsessed with money. That becomes your whole life. And then you realize that it burns in the fire. Or, you know, crashes whenever the numbers drop. It's not something to be counted on, but you've given yourself to it. And so you experience the consequences of your particular sin. So God, and this is, this is the, this is the um, interesting part of it. It's like God releases, he actively hands you over. So on the one hand, let's talk about the ultimate punishment of hell. On the one hand, I think people go to hell because they ask to. And it's almost, as, it's as true to say that God allows people to be separated from him eternally than it is to say that he sends people. And yet it's also true to say that he sends people because he's the one who made us this way, such that our actions have consequences. So this is not fun stuff to talk about, but it's important stuff to talk about because it's true. So these are the things we learn from Sodom itself. We learn a couple other things from some of the other characters. Learn two things from Lot's wife, a couple of things from Lot's daughters. If I can, I don't know if I'll be able to save time for questions or not, or at least for some reflection, but let me work through these. Uh, these are pretty, pretty obvious, I think, from, or pretty clear. From Lot's wife, we learn, number 11, that normal is addicting. We get addicted to normal. We get addicted to our routine, even if our routine is not good. We get addicted to what we're used to, even if what we're used to is abusive. Even if what we're used to is destructive. Um, and I don't... I don't know if this will resonate. I hope this doesn't offend. I don't mean it to be offensive. Like, growing up poor, like, the food that you learn to love, you don't even realize that it's, like, not good for you, right? So I got a buddy of mine that kind of grew up similar to how we grew up, and we always talk about how, like, some of that stuff is good. Like, those cheap little peaches still in the microwave. I don't even want to read the, like, calorie content or whatever, but those still taste good. You know what I'm saying? And, like, you fall in love with the things that actually become destructive for you. And even after you don't necessarily have to buy those, I walk down that aisle and I'm like, hmm, oh, buy me some Tostitos pizza or whatever it's called, you know? I don't know if this makes sense at all, but it's this idea that we find ourselves drawn to what is natural for us, even if we know it's not good for us. Even if we know, you know, I could do something else, but there's just something about it that tastes familiar. 
There's just something about it that feels normal. And what's true about bad food is true about life in general. Even if what you're used to isn't good for you, it's hard to break free. Hard to break free. This is why sometimes husbands and wives wake up and they look at each other and they think, I don't know if I've loved you for a solid decade. How in the world did you get there, you know? And more to the point, why are you going to stay there? Why in the world would you stay there? And some people don't. Some people take the opposite decision and, and you know, and bounce, I'm out. But sometimes people just stay. It's like, why, why, not just, why not just change? Well, this is why you have certain conflict patterns in relationships. It doesn't have to be husband and wife. It might be a close friendship. It might be a parent. It might be any number of work type thing. You get into these cycles and patterns. I'm going to get a job, and I'm going to work hard for like six months to a year. And then after six months to a year, I start to feel discontent, you know? And then it's like, I kind of realize I probably should just stick it out, but I don't want to, so I don't. I get another job, and I repeat the cycle over and over and over. Why? Because normal is addicting. Normal is addicting. This is why Lot's wife looked back. This takes us to the number 12. It's pretty similar. If you don't let go of the world, you may share her fate. Lot's wife looked back, and she became a pillar of salt. What does that mean? This is one of those weirdest parts of the Bible for me. This is one of those parts where it's like, if I was a non-believer and you're asking me to believe this, I'd say you're kind of crazy. I, 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 w- I was really looking forward to digging into this because I thought, I wanna un- is, this like a, is this like an expression? Does this literally mean that the woman, like, turn around, pillar of salt? What the heck? How'd that happen? Here's what I think it's talking about. I, I think it actually is a literal description, but I don't think it's as weird as it seems like it is. Uh, part of it is the verb looked back. When we say looked back, you think, you know, whatever, take a peek. Looked back is a little bit more of a resolute, like, refused to move. So I think what's happening here is they're literally walking away from the city. They're, they're moving away from, and again, in an area where Dead Sea area, salt everywhere. Like, you may have heard this before. I was skeptical. If you get into the Dead Sea, you float because the salt content is so rich. You can actually run your hand across the bottom and just pull up salt crystals. And I'm thinking to myself, all right, I get that most people float, but I've never floated. Okay, like I get in water. There ain't nothing on me to float. I just fall to the bottom. So I'm like, I'm the test case to see if this actually works. I get out there. Sure enough, I'm just floating. Salt is everywhere. And I think what happened is at a certain point, they're making their, don't picture flatlands. They're making their way across these hills, running to this nearby village. And she says, I I just, I can't leave. And so she, I, I'm just going to lay down in the, lay down in the, lay down in the, in the, in the sand, lay down in the, in the dust, lay down in the salt. And I think she just refused to move so much so that she just curled up and died there. And then literally over time, this is what would happen is if you lay down in a place like this on the side of the road or on the side of the hills, eventually the sand's going to cover you up. Salt's going to take over and you're just going to become a pillar of salt. So I think what we're seeing here, it's a little bit of a kind of a poetic way of describing it. But at the end of the day, don't picture, you know, turn over the shoulder, all of a sudden, you know, get out the salt and pepper shakers. Picture, I can't do it. So I'm just going to curl up in a ball, lay down on the side of the road and stay here forever. So once again, number 12, if you don't let go of the world, you may share her fate. And as if we haven't seen enough, you know, wisdom in the story, let's talk about Lot's daughters. Two things we learned from Lot's daughters. I suppose we could say a third. I don't have this on there. Let me just, this is just bonus. This is 12.5. When you're scared and you feel you have no way out, you might be tempted to do something dumb. Yeah. 
When you're scared and feel that you have no way out, you might be tempted to do something dumb. Let me give you 13 and 14. Number 13, conformity to culture compounds the crisis. A lot of C words there. Conformity to culture compounds the crisis or increases the crisis. Why am I talking about conformity to culture? Do you remember the motivation for Lot's daughters sleeping with their father? Everybody else does it. We don't have husbands. We don't have a protection like everybody else has. Our father is old and there's no men around here to give us children, as is the custom all over the earth. Their motivation was to be like everybody else. Now, I don't know if you're going to ask me, what were they supposed to do? I don't know. I, I suppose they were supposed to trust in God and believe in the end that if they stayed committed to him, that it would turn out for them, whether in this life or the next. I don't know. But I, know what they, I don't know what they were supposed to do. I know what they did do. What they did do is they said, we, we need to be like everybody else. And so they got their father drunk and they slept with him. And then they gave birth to sons, Moab and Ammon. The Moabites and the Ammonites were two of Israel's, they were thorns in her flesh her entire existence. Go do a just Bible search on Moab, Moabites and Ammonites. You get some pretty ugly stories. So here you have the, these, these women who are thinking, well, this is probably the solution to the situation. So we're going to try to be like everybody else to solve this problem that we're in. But in trying to be like everybody else, Instead of solving the problem that they were in, they made the problem worse. Instead of moving the mission forward and keeping God's family alive, they actually created a context where there'd be even more conflict than there ever was before. So the first thing that we learn from Lot's daughters is, if you try to be like the people around you, you're just going to make it worse. Or conformity to culture compounds the crisis. And you can fill in your, your sort of current cultural reality of choice. Whatever it is that you're tempted to do just like everybody else, maybe for you it's some sort of sexual sin, maybe for you it's unforgiveness, Forgiveness is popular in theory, but not actually in practice. Revenge is popular in practice. Maybe you're tempted to be like everybody else in that respect. All sorts of things that are the normal way the world chooses to do something. We do things differently. If we don't, we compound the crisis. And then number 14, I don't even want to say this one. Children imitate the sins of their mothers and fathers. Their father was a selfish, me-first opportunist. So what did they become? Their mother was addicted to the way everyone else did things. So what did they do? And like, I probably would have been a little bit more judgmental before I had my own kids. Now I just, I like, I, I you know? Like, who's a perfect parent? Nobody. It's weird because I work with college students, which part of what I love about working with college students is this is the first time they're stepping away from their family of origin, the home they grew up in, and so they're starting to think on their own. And I like helping them process how to take the good from the, the heritage that they have, but like redeem the, the, the bad or the poor or whatever. It's a very sensitive process. And if done poorly, then you could just imitate all the foolishness, or if done poorly, you could just reject all the good with the bad. I like to walk them through this, but the result is I get a lot of, a lot of like 19, 20, 21-year-olds in my office talking to me about the ways their parents screwed them up. And at the end of every day, I'm like, well, crap, my kids are going to be in somebody else's office. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> and like, I think I'm a pretty good dad, but I'm not a perfect dad. And, uh, and I have to reckon with the fact that Man, I mean, big part of my story is not becoming like my biological father. 
Now, I don't think Carson will have the same struggle. I know he won't. But there will be senses in which the sins that I don't root out, he may pay for and his children. Claire may pay for and her children and their children. That's just the reality. So I'm with you. Like, yes, it's by grace. And God isn't going to get rid of all our sin today because if he did, then we'd become more prideful and we'd be back in the place where we were in the first place, right? He wants us to remember that we need grace. This is part of why he leaves us in our current condition for a while. But I want to get rid of my sin, not just because it'll make my life better, but because it will have an impact on generations to come because children imitate the sins of their mothers and fathers. And I'd like to give them a short list. So far, everybody but Abraham is doing dumb things. You notice this? Abraham's, Abraham's great. Like He's been doing pretty good for a while. He had that one hang-up with Hagar, but he's been doing pretty good for a while. And in these stories, so far, great news. Then you come to chapter 20. Let me read it to you. Genesis 20. Now Abram moved on from there into the region of the Negev and lived between Kadesh and Shur. For a while he stayed in Gerar, and there Abram said of his wife Sarah, She is my sister. Then Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent for Sarah and took her. But God came to Abimelech in a dream one night and said to him, You are as good as dead because of the woman you have taken. She's a married woman. Now Abimelech had not gone near her, so he said, Lord, will you destroy an innocent nation? Did he not say to me, She's my sister? And did she not also say, He's my brother? I've done this with a clear conscience and clean hands. So then God said to him in a dream, Yeah, I know. You did this with a clear conscience, and so I've kept you from sinning against me. That's why I did not let you touch her. Now return the man's wife, for he is a prophet, and he will pray for you, and you will live. But if you do not return her, you may be sure that you and all who belong to you will die. Early the next morning, Abimelech summoned all his officials, and when he told them all that had happened, they were very much afraid. And then Abimelech called Abraham in and said, What have you done to us? How have I wronged you that you have brought such great guilt upon me and my kingdom? You have done things to me that should never be done. And Abimelech asked Abraham, What was your reason for doing this? And Abraham replied, I said to myself, There is surely no fear of God in this place, and they will kill me because of my wife. Besides, she really is my sister, the daughter of my father, though not of my mother. And she became my wife. And when God had me wander from my father's household, I said to her, This is how you can show your love to me. Everywhere we go, say of me, He is my brother. Then Abimelech brought sheep and cattle and male and female slaves and gave them to Abraham, and he returned Sarah, his wife, to him. And Abimelech said, My land is before you live wherever you like. To Sarah he said, I am giving your brother a thousand shekels of silver. This is to cover the offense against you before all who are with you. You are completely vindicated. And then Abraham prayed to God, and God healed Abimelech, his wife, and his female slaves so they could have children again. For the Lord had kept all the women in Abimelech's household from conceiving because of Abraham's wife, Sarah. From Abraham we learn that progress is real, but plateaus are dangerous. I believe that you can become increasingly free from sin. If you were with us, uh, what was it, two semesters ago when we studied Romans... I tried to say that about as many different times and ways as I could. I believe that you can be free from sin. I think that's a core part of the gospel. You don't have to sin anymore. You can look at sin in your past and and it stays in your past. But I also want us to recognize that we shouldn't become complacent in our current levels of growth. And we shouldn't think, just because I haven't sinned in a while, maybe you used to struggle with lying, you still need to be passionately committed and intensely emphatic on telling the truth. Maybe you struggle with, uh, 
with gluttony or with, um, with greed or with envy. Maybe you used to be envious of other people and you think, man, I remember when I was envy and, and I celebrate that growth with you. But be careful about the plateaus because you might find yourself in a situation where once again you're tempted to say, I wish I wasn't me, I wish I was them. I wish I had what they had. I don't. Plateaus are dangerous. Progress is real, but plateaus are dangerous. And here's the bonus truth. Through all this, we learn that God always keeps his promise to bless. I don't even understand why at this point, except for the fact that God said he would. Why in the world would God bail Abraham out again? Because he said he would. And because he's that good, even when we don't deserve it. Here's what I want you to do. I'm going to pray, and then we're going to officially be done. I think you have a few minutes left, though. What I want you to do is for as long as you need. Maybe you already know and you're good to go. That's fine. Maybe you need to take a few moments. If so, take them. And I want you to ask, all right, God, 15 and a half truths coming out of this passage. Which one's for me? And then secondly, I want you to say, all right, which one's for somebody else, and how do you want me to deliver them the truth? That's what I want you to do. Let me pray for you. You can think on those things. And then when you're done, uh, go ahead and head on out of here. Father God, thanks. Thanks for being a truth-speaking God and for um, demonstrating your faithfulness to us by taking strange stories and teaching us important truths from them. We pray that you would help us to see more and more truth every time we'd open up the scriptures. We pray that you would help us to, I guess God in particular, I'm, I'm, I'm feeling compelled right now to pray that we would take the long view and recognize that no matter what's going on around us in the immediate, whether it seems like you're with us or not, whether things are easy or not, if we take the long view and obey you, then it's always going to work out well for us and for the people around us. So God, help us to focus our minds on the truths that you want us to apply to our lives and then help us to apply them and help us also to see the truths that you want us to encourage into another person's life and help us to know how to do that well. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to a Wednesday night class from Christ Church of Orinoco. For more information about these classes or about Christ Church in general, visit us online at ccochurch.com.